Well, Nolan Bushnell missed a golden opportunity. Uh, he made a bad decision, a decision that he's regretted ever since he made it years ago. Uh, let me give you some backstory here. Uh, Nolan was the founder of Atari, at one time the leader in the video game industry. And back in the 1970s, he hired a bright young man by the name of Steve Jobs. You ever heard of Steve Jobs? <laughs> All right. And in 1976, Jobs decided it was time to leave Atari and start his own company, a computer company called Apple. So he went to Nolan and he said, listen, I'm going to need some startup cash. And I wonder, wondered if I could hit you up for $50,000. Would you give me $50,000 of venture capital? Now, he knew he was asking for a chunk of change. So he added, if you'll give me $50,000, I'll give you a third share in the company. And Nolan said, nah, I don't think so. Now, do you have any idea how much Apple is worth today? It's worth $632 billion. How'd you like to have a third share of Apple? Okay, Apple is worth more today than the entire U.S. aircraft carrier, carrier fleet. It is worth more than worldwide lottery sales. It is worth more than the global coffee industry. It's worth more than every American will spend on prescription drugs this year. It is worth more than the Apollo space program times two. You get the idea. Now, Nolan could have had a, a third share of that for a measly $50,000. So why didn't he take advantage of this golden opportunity? Well, the article that I was reading in a business magazine about this didn't say why he took a pass. Uh, but I, I could surmise it was probably for one of Two basic reasons. Number one, he just didn't see the potential of the investment. Now, it's strange for us. We're on the other side of it. We see the $632 billion. But he's looking at a fledgling computer company startup and thinking, yeah, not a good investment. Or, or number two, he just didn't have the cash on hand. Now, he was a wealthy man. So he had $50,000, but maybe he didn't have $50,000 laying around in cash to invest. Maybe it was tied up in, in personal acquisitions or business investments, things of that nature. Why am I telling you this story? Well, because we're in the second week of a series called Buried Treasure, uh, subtitle, Discovering Eternal Riches. Discovering Eternal Riches. And the, the gist of this series, you know, we're, 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 the thrust is to challenge us to invest our resources, especially our money, in things of eternal value, things of ultimate worth. Things that will impact people's life for the sake of Christ's forever kingdom. But many of us are going to miss this golden opportunity to make eternal investments. And we're, we're going to miss the opportunity for the same reason that Nolan missed the opportunity to invest in Apple. Number one, we just don't see the worthwhileness of it. So, you know, what am I going to get out of this? We, we don't see the potential of an investment in eternal things. You know, speaking of eternal things, I'm talking about the Lord's work, okay? Local church ministries, mission outreaches, feeding the poor, and so on. Like, what do I get out of this? Or number two, maybe our heart beats for these kind of interests. we got a warm heart for them, but we just don't have the cash. We're cash strapped. Okay, we, we don't have the money because the money has been spent on other things, on uh, cars and college tuitions and uh, designer jeans and uh, heating bills and, 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 and you name it. 
So two reasons we don't make these eternal investments. Let me review. Number one, we don't see the potential. And, and number two, we just don't have the cash. So today what we're going to do, we're going to take the second of those reasons. We're going to address it from Scripture. Okay, how do you come up with the cash to make eternal investments? And next weekend, Pastor Clayton is going to talk about the first of those reasons. He's going to talk about the value, the potential of eternal investments, the return, what you get out of it, okay? And then two weeks from now, which will be the fourth and final week of this series, we got something really special for you. Uh, I started studying for the series all the way back in summer. And one of the books that came across my desk, a book on money called God and Money, written by two young guys, John and Greg. And so, so I read the book. Now, John and Greg, a few years ago, they were in their 20s. They were making six-figure incomes. And both of them decided to go to Harvard for an MBA. Now, at the time, they didn't know each other. So when they arrived at Harvard, didn't know who, who the other guy was. But because they're both Christ followers, they got involved in a men's Bible study group, and that's where they became friends. So during the day, they're going to courses, studying how to make money, how to manage money. And off to the side, they're in a Bible study. One of the topics they're covering is what the Bible has to say about money. And their study revolutionized their thinking. Their, life cha their, their study changed their lives. And so they ended up writing a book. It, it contributed to their MBA. Uh, the book is called God and Money, How We Discovered True Riches at Harvard Business School. And so as I was preparing for this series, having read their book, I thought to myself, it would be really cool to interview these two guys. So picked up the phone, called them. Long story short, they're coming from two different cities, but they're going to be with us two weeks from now, John and Greg. And uh, what I'm especially excited about, you know, they're young dudes, they're millennials. And so they got an entirely fresh perspective on God and money. You're, you're not going to want to miss it. So today, today's topic is cash flow. How do we come up with the cash, the, the money to get involved in eternal investments? And as I was thinking about this topic and thinking, well, what scripture text would be good for this? My, my mind was drawn to a number of passages in the book of Proverbs. Now, Proverbs is one of five Old Testament wisdom literature books. That's what Bible scholars call them, the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. So wisdom literature is just chock full of very practical advice for everyday concerns. So if you go through Proverbs, one of the everyday concerns it addresses is this topic of money. So today we're going to be skipping around in the book of, of Proverbs. If you brought a Bible with you, you want to turn to Proverbs now. Proverbs 21 is where, where we're going to begin. Easy to find because it's right next to Psalms. Psalms is the big book in the middle of your Bible. And just go to, to the right of it a little bit. You'll come to Proverbs. And uh, Proverbs, if you're a fan of Dave Ramsey, uh, Dave Ramsey is the financial guru that a lot of people have heard of uh, because he's got a nationally syndicated radio show. He's written a best, uh, best-selling curriculum study called FPU, Financial Peace University. We teach it here at Christ Community Church. I'm going to talk more about that a little later on. If you've ever studied Dave Ramsey's stuff, you know that he draws a lot of his principles from the book of Proverbs. So today, what I want, I want to give you three financial principles from Proverbs. If you want cash with which to make eternal investments, three principles to keep in mind. So if you haven't taken your notes out yet, I encourage you to fill out the outline as we go along. At least write down the main points so that you won't forget them. Okay, here's point number one. Controlled spending. 
If you want cash for eternal investments, it requires controlled spending. Now, if you're open to Proverbs 21, look at verse 17. We're going to put it up here on the screen. And I, I want to read it together across our, our four campuses. If you are home with the flu, you've got to read this out loud. Okay, here we go with your outdoor voice. Whoever loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and olive oil will never be rich. And this is the word of the Lord. Yes, and I do thank God. I thank God for the, uh, the word he's given us, the practicality of his word. So according to this verse, Proverbs 21, verse 17, why are some people cash-strapped? Okay, wh why do they lack money for important things, especially eternal investments? Well, according to this verse, it's because they've spent all their money. <laughs> you know, they've spent it, according to Proverbs 21, verse 17, on stuff like pleasure and wine and olive oil. Sounds like they've been eating out at a lot of Italian restaurants, doesn't it? <laughs> So the writer of Proverbs is saying people who spend too much money on food and drink, they, they don't have money left over for more important things. And, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, you're thinking, well, that's not me. I don't spend a lot of money on, on food and drink. But the writer of Proverbs, he could have gone on. He could have said, so don't spend too much money not only on food and drink, but don't spend too much money on a new car or on a health club membership or on your kids' extracurricular activities or on home improvements or video games or clothes or sporting events or... On and on the list goes. How many of you know that uncontrolled spending is a real problem in our country today? Yeah, of course it is. We, we spend money as quickly as we get it. I mean, flip over a couple of chapters. You're in Proverbs 21. Go over to chapter 23. Look at verse 5. There's this beautiful word picture here that describes how money slips through many of our fingers. Okay? Verse 5 says... Cast but a glance at riches, okay, at money, and the riches are gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Does that describe you? Okay, does money seem to fly out of your pocket, fly out of your bank account, fly out of your checkbook? That's a problem. That's a problem. Now, maybe, maybe your uncontrolled spending has gotten you into debt, and I, I won't take the time to bore you with statistics, overwhelming statistics, about what a huge problem debt is, personal debt, in our country today. But let me read to you another proverb about debt. Okay, go to Proverbs 22, just one chapter away. Look at verse 7. It says, The rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave to the lender. This is really profound. The borrower is slave to the lender. In other words, you, you feel like you're a slave to your debts? You feel like you're a slave to your household mortgage or your car payments or your student loans or your credit card bills? Well, that's because the borrower is slave to the lender. You remember the bumper sticker that was really popular a few years back? I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Yeah, we, we're slaves to work. We've got to put in more hours. We've got to make more money. Why? Because we've we got debts to pay off. But, but even if you make a lot of money, even listen, even if you make enough money so that you could buy most things you want without going into debt, uncontrolled spending can still eat up all your income so that you have nothing left for eternal investments. 
I, I read an interview in my news magazine a couple of weeks ago with Sting, the musical artist Sting. Grew up in England. Grew up the son of a milkman and a hairdresser. Okay, currently he lives in New York City. He's made a little progress financially. He lives in a $21 million apartment in New York City. But those aren't his only digs. Okay, he's also got a 300-acre estate in England, jolly old England, along with a 17th century manor house on the property. Uh, but that's not it. He's got a 600-acre estate in Tuscany in, in Italy. He's got a villa there, and that's where he makes his own wine and his own olive oil. Not making this up. And he's got beachfront property in Malibu. Okay, so the, the dude's loaded. But, but what fascinated me in the interview was this. He, he talked about the fact that he'd warned his children not to expect too much of an inheritance. This is his quote. I told them, Sting said, there won't be much money left because we're spending it. When it comes in, we spend, and there isn't much left. I thought, wow, so, so even if you make a bundle of money, so much that you can buy just about anything you want without going into debt, if you don't control your spending, there won't be anything left for eternal investments. So how do we control our spending? Here's a simple answer to that question. You go to FPU, okay? Financial Peace University. I'm going to put a, a plug in right now because we just started a new semester. I'll be honest with you, we only have a couple of holes left. Now, some started last week, but the first of the nine weeks is introductory. So if you're looking to join, you could still jump in the second week. And one or two of our campuses, they're actually starting this week. So go online. Find out when FPU is being offered at your campus and enroll. Hundreds of people at Christ Community Church have gone through the nine-week FPU program, and they will tell you one of the best things they've ever done. In fact, every time we open up registration now, about 40% of our registrants come from outside our church. They come from the community because FPU has such a stellar reputation. So the easy answer, how do you control your spending? Go to FPU. They'll coach you how to do it. The more difficult answer to the question is this. How do you control your spending? You create and you follow a budget. And a budget puts limits on your spending. You create and you follow a budget. Now, if you go to FPU, they'll help you do that. If not, you're still going to have to figure out how to create and follow a budget. How to create and follow a budget. I, I read something interesting about this not too long ago. Uh, in a book for parents, uh, a book aimed at helping your kids manage their money. It says, your, uh, your kids can master their money, I think is the name of the book. We probably have a, a book cover up here. Uh, Ron and Judy Blue wrote this book. And in the book, one of the things that they advocate, if you're a parent, they say, don't just buy your kids what they need. You buy their cell phone, you buy their clothes, you, you, know, you pay for their sports registration, and so on. Instead, they say, give them a set amount of money. Now, this will depend on how old they are, whether or not they got an outside job, uh, how many chores they're doing around the house. And what, but you give them a set amount of money, and you teach them how to manage that money. So they learn to set limits on it in every area. And then Ron and Judy Blue, they give some examples of what they're talking about that I thought were really interesting. They said, for example, you take your family to Disney World. At the beginning of the week, you tell each child, this is how much money you get to work with. 
So if, if the child spends all that money on junk food at the beginning of the week and there, there's nothing left over by the end of the week for souvenirs and a, a you know, Disney World t-shirt and whatever, that, that's it. You know, you don't give them a cash advance. You don't float them alone. So when they're out of money, they're out of money. Or, or a second example they give in the book, they said if you take your kids to a restaurant for a meal, everybody's got that one child who loves to order the most expensive thing on the, on the menu, Right? They love to order the $7.95 chocolate cheesecake for dessert. These authors say there's a simple way to deal with that. You say, this is the amount of money you get to spend for the meal today. It's 8 bucks or it's 10 bucks or, or whatever. Spend it how you will. You've got to stay within the limits. That's all we're covering. Or how about this one? They said, if your child is in sports and you've know, you got all these traveling teams and some want to do two, three sports a season, you just give them a budget to work with. This is how much money we're going to give you over the course of the year. And it's going to cover all the registrations, the uniforms, the tournaments, the soccer balls, everything. And suddenly your child begins to understand why it's impossible. They can't afford to play three sports a season. So you give them a budget to work with. Now, I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, this is very wise advice for parents to use with their kids. And then it dawned on me, this is very wise advice for those of us who are grown-ups. See, when we create and we follow a budget, we're putting limits on how much money we're going to spend in each area of our lives. How much money are you going to spend on clothes? Do you know how much money you're going to spend on Starbucks coffee or on household decorating or on golf or on new tires for your car or family vacations or cosmetics? Controlled spending. Say it with me. Controlled spending. Because you'll either control your spending or your spending will control you. Let me add to this a footnote, okay? Because when we're living with uncontrolled spending, friends, there's something going on in internally that we need to deal with. In fact, until you change up some twisted motivations going on in your heart, you will never control your spending. You'll put a budget in place, but you'll find it's impossible to stick to your budget. So, so you've got to identify, what is it that's causing you to overspend when you overspend? Let me give you some examples. Let's say you overspend on a car. Okay, is it possible that you've been motivated by a need to impress others? You buy more car than what you need because it's a vehicle you want to be seen in. Or you overspend on a cell phone upgrade. Is it possible that you're, you're, you're motivated by ingratitude for the phone you currently have and it works just fine? Or, or, or you're tempted to overspend on nails and hair. I don't run into this a lot myself, but... Is it motivated by an insecurity with who you are on the inside? Or, or you're, you're tempted to overspend on eating out or on season tickets or concerts? Or what? Is it motivated by a boredom that can only be relieved in your life by constant excitement? It has to be perpetual excitement. Or, or maybe you overspend on education for your kids. You want your kids to have private e education. Why? Because you're motivated by envy, those parents who, who are able to afford this for their kids. Now, please understand, I'm not saying that these are your motivations if you've overspent in these areas. I'm just saying that when we're tempted to overspend, we'd be wise to ask ourselves the question, what is motivating, what is driving me to overspend in this area? Because until you deal with a basic motivation, you'll never get your spending under control. 
By the way, if you're looking for a good book on this subject, this particular subject, uh, Paul Tripp, who is a Christian counselor, he's kind of a funky looking guy. We got a picture of him. Interesting looking dude. There's stuff living in that mustache, I think. All right. But I want to tell you, I read like everything I can get of Paul Tripps. He is a, a wise therapist, counselor, uh, a best-selling author. He has written a book on this topic called Sex and Money. And listen to the subtitle, Pleasures That Leave You Empty and Grace That Satisfies. He, he basically says, hey, there's an internal problem here with regard to our management of money. It's a hard issue, and he gets at the heart of things. It deals a little with uh, you know, what we talked about last weekend, getting Jesus as the treasure of your life, because once, once Jesus is filling the hole in your life, you're not trying to fill that hole with other things that will never fill it up. So would highly recommend that book. Controlled spending. Number two, compounded saving. Compounded saving. Go back to Proverbs. Take a look at a verse that has to do with compounded saving. This time it's Proverbs 13. Okay, Proverbs 13, and I want to read just the second half of verse 11. Whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Now this is so simple it's easy to miss. Let me read it again. Whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. Now, the truth of the matter is, we would all love to gather money in big bunches, wouldn't we? Not little by little. I mean, we would like to win the lottery, or we'd like to go into work this, uh, this week and find out that we've been given a huge salary increase, or we would like to invest in something that triples in value overnight, or we'd like to, to learn this week that a rich uncle we didn't even know we had has passed away, and he's written us up in his will. Proverbs 13 verse 11 says, friends, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. If you want your cash reserves to grow, then save up money little by little by little. But let me make you an offer today, okay? Take a pick. Which, which of these two things you want? I will give you either $50,000 a day, every day for the next month, 31 days straight. Or option two, door number two, I will give you a penny today, and tomorrow I'll double it to two cents, and the next day I'll double it to four cents, and we'll do this for 31 days of a month. How many of you are going to take the $50,000 a day for a month? So, some of you know this is a trick question. <laughs> You'd be wise to stick with a penny. See, if you take the 50 grand every day, you end up with about a million and a half dollars. If you take the penny doubling every day, you end up with $10,737,418. Say, what's the point? Well, the point is learn how to save your money a little bit at a time. A little bit from every paycheck. And you watch it grow. Now, some of you who are cynical, you're thinking to yourself, hey, so what's the benefit? What's, what's the benefit of having a savings account? So you got money in a savings account. Big whip. I'd rather be spending the money and enjoying it. Okay, two quick reasons for having money in savings. First, the money is there in case of emergency. Okay, this is your emergency fund. You, you lose your job or your car, or your washing machine breaks down and you got to replace it, uh, or you, you run into a health problem that isn't completely covered by your, your insurance emergencies. Second reason to have a savings account is that you're able to buy stuff with cash 
Rather than spend all that extra money you're going to spend if you buy it on credit, if you buy it by making payments. See, if, if, you're, if you're making payments on a car right now, let, let me ask you a question. Have you ever sat down and calculated how much more you're going to spend on that car than if you had bought it with cash? See, it's an enormous amount of money. It's crazy. And so, so right now you start saving so when you need another vehicle, you're, you're able to buy it cash in hand. Now, there, there's another proverb that I think applies to what we're talking about here, and it has to do with ants. Okay, not ants like ants and uncles, but A-N-T-S, ants. It's in Proverbs 6. So turn over to Proverbs chapter 6. Let me read to you verses 6 through 8. Go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways, and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, and yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. So why, why does the writer of Proverbs say that ants are wise? That's because they know how to store things up. They collect provisions in summer and at harvest time. He says, presumably, so that when winter comes and they need something to eat, they've got it. Okay, they've got, as it were, cash in hand. They've stored it up. They've saved it little by little. I, I, I want to tell you about uh, an ant named Lindsay. She's not really an aunt. She's a young woman in her 20s who attends Christ Community Church. Uh, but back when she was a high school student, uh, Lindsay's parents enrolled in FPU, in Financial Peace University, and they brought her with them. Now, Lindsay would be the first to tell you that uh, not everything that Dave Ramsey taught stuck with her. She was not extremely interested in a financial management course. But she happened to imbibe some of the principles. You, know, you can't help but imbibe them when you go to this course. And so not surprisingly, when she graduated from college uh, just recently, and she had a $25,000 student loan to pay back, she knew it was critical to get out of that debt ASAP. And, and because she had taken FPU, she knew how to get out of debt. She knew the sacrifices that would have to be made. She knew that she couldn't rent an apartment with friends. She needed to live at home for a bit. She, she couldn't spend money on all the things her friends were spending money on. It needed to go to this debt retirement. And Lindsay retired her student loan debt in less than a year. In less than a year. Now, just recently, she decided, because she's getting married this spring, she decided it would be worthwhile to do FPU a second time, kind of a refresher course, relearn some of these principles. And as a result, she ended up buying a, a car for herself, cash, not payments, by a 20-something-year-old buying her car cash. And not only that, her fiancé, who's still got a little bit of student loan left, the two of them are working to retire that student loan before their wedding date in April. Some of you parents are thinking, how do you get a girl like that? She's so, she's so mature. She's so fiscally responsible. Let me remind you of the first part of the story. The parents set the example. Okay? The parents were the role model. The parents said, we're going to FPU and you're coming with us. All right? So controlled spending, compounded saving, number three. If you want to make eternal investments, you've got to be committed to giving. So committed giving. I have been beating the drum for FPU. It will teach you how to manage your money well so that you can get out of debt, so you could build up a savings account, so that you could buy things that you, you've wanted to buy. But the most important reason, listen, 
the most important reason for managing your money well is so that you could become a generous person, so that you could make eternal investments in the Lord's work. In fact, let me tell you something. If you go to FPU and you learn how to manage your money and get out of debt and control your spending, and what, but you don't make eternal investments, you're a foolish money manager. You're very short-sighted. You're, you're like Nolan, the opening illustration. I mean, you got a lot of money, but when the opportunity comes, the golden opportunity to invest in a huge payoff, you miss the opportunity. You miss it. So I want to take a look at some Proverbs that deal with this committed giving. Proverbs chapter 3, and we're going to draw several principles from these two verses, Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. So keep it open on your lap. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, and then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. Now, three aspects here of committed giving that I, I want to point out, and then we'll close. First aspect is this. There's a standard. Okay, what, what is the standard of giving according to this verse? The writer of Proverbs says that we're to honor the Lord with the first fruits of our crops. Now, first fruits in, in the Bible, this is just another reference to what the Bible calls a tithe, giving the Lord the first 10% of our income. So if you, if you were a farmer in Bible times, you would bring your tithe in the form of produce. Okay, when harvest came, you would bring the first fruits. You would, you would bring 10% of your crop to the central worship center, and those tithes would be used primarily to pay for the ministry that was going on at and through that worship center. Now, now, today you bring your tithes to the church and we ask you, please don't put corn and an alfalfa and, and soybeans in the offering bag, all right? But, you know, m most of us, even farmers among us, uh, we don't get our pay in, in crops these days. We, we get our pay in the form of a paycheck. And so we bring 10% of that paycheck to the central worship center and we offer it to be used in the ministries of the church. Now, let me tell you, at Christ Community Church, when I say the ministries of the church, I, I mean that what you're investing in is at mentoring children through Kids World. Or you're investing in setting people free from addictions or helping them navigate times of great grief in their lives through our Tuesday care night. Or it means you're investing in our international impact partners. And so in places like Bangladesh and in Haiti, where we're drilling wells for clean water and providing medical care and orphanages as well as spiritual ministry, that's what you're investing in. You're investing in the worship that goes on every weekend across four campuses when thousands of people gather. You're investing in outreach events like we do, uh, you know, at Christmas time or we do on WOW weekends where we see hundreds of people make brand new commitments to following Jesus and their lives are forever changed. That's your investment. Now, now this 10% that, that we bring is not to be seen in, in the Bible. It's not seen as the finish line, like when, once you get there, you stop giving. In, in fact, the Bible treats it almost like, like a starting line. So you want to get to the 10% as soon as you can, and then as God prospers you, you, you become even more generous with your giving. A guy named Randy Elkhorn has written a little book called The Treasure Principle, one of the most inspirational books on generosity I've ever read, and it's a really short little book. And in the book, he says that the tie, the 10%, it's like training wheels with respect to generosity. Like, yeah, it helps to start 
with that 10% because it's so easy to calculate. You look at your paycheck, you move the decimal over one point, and that's what God says, bring it back to me, bring it, bring it to the storehouse, bring it to the worship center. But Randy says, don't stop there. As God prospers you, learn to give more, more and more. You know, I, I, I love the story. It's told about a king. He was parading down the main street of his capital city. And there was a beggar sitting, eating a bowl of rice on the side of the road. And he saw the king coming. And so as the king passed, he held up his bowl of rice, hoping to receive some donation from the king. And instead, the king looked him in the eye and he said, would you give me some of your rice? Well, the beggar was kind of irritated by this. This is not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to give me something, not, not me give you something. And so very stingily, he reached into his bowl and he picked out three small grains, three small grains of rice and dropped them in the king's hand. And the king went on and the beggar went back to his bowl of rice and he looked in and he was surprised to see three small grains of gold. And his immediate thought was, if only I'd given more. If only I'd, I'd given more. The, you know, the biblical baseline is, is 10%. But friend, I guarantee a day is coming when we will wish that we had given our king a whole lot more. Which brings me to the second aspect of committed giving in Proverbs 3, verse, verses 9 and 10. The first is the standard is 10%. Okay, and then the reward, go back to, to verses 9 and 10. What reward does God promise those who bring the first fruits, the tithe of their income? Verse 10 says that the person's barns will be filled to overflowing and their vats will brim over with new wine. You're thinking, great, I don't have a barn and I don't own any vats. Well, this is, this is obviously a word picture. It's a picture of prosperity. God promises prosperity to committed givers. What will that prosperity look like? Well, it'll be both literal and figurative, and it'll be sometimes present and sometimes future. So let, let me take apart each of those couplets. God rewards generosity with prosperity. Sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's figurative. By literal, I mean sometimes God gives back financial remuneration. And I see this happen all the time at Christ Community Church. People become givers, and suddenly they find that they're climbing out of debt. Or they find that they've got enough money for college tuition, maybe through scholarships or whatever. Or they get a raise at work. You know, or they're able to purchase a car. They need a car and they get this amazing, can you believe this amazing deal I got? And yeah, I can because I believe God rewards generosity with prosperity. Sometimes it's financial prosperity, literal prosper prosperity. Now, I keep a file folder next to my desk of letters and emails that people have sent me over the years telling me stories of how God has rewarded their generosity because I find it so inspiring. I was going through that file folder this last week and just pulled out a letter from a woman not too long ago who wrote me. She said, we started giving, we started tithing when my husband was unemployed. She said, we, we looked at our finances and we said, you know, it's time that we stop trying to control this area of our lives ourselves and just give it to God. And if God says the first 10% goes to God, that's what we're going to do. And they began to tithe on his unemployment check. And the rest of the letter went on to detail how God had supplied for their needs through the period of unemployment. And she said, and now my husband has an amazing, her word, amazing new job. I don't find that surprising 
at all. Because that's what Proverbs 3 says will happen. When you honor God with your wealth, with your giving, God will honor you in return. Sometimes literally. Sometimes figuratively. What do I mean by that? Well, sometimes the remuneration isn't in the form you know, of, of financial benefits. Sometimes it's answered to prayer. You know, you become a giver and all of a sudden it seems like the the windows of heaven are open and God is hearing and answering your prayers like never before. Sometimes it comes in the form of restored relationships. Sometimes it comes in the form of accelerated spiritual growth. I see people begin to take off spiritually when they finally become givers. Sometimes it takes the the form of just joy that you experience. You you start investing in the Lord's work and you see the difference it makes in people's lives and you say, I'm part of that. This is so cool. So sometimes it's literal, sometimes it's figurative. God gives prosperity in response to our generosity. Sometimes it's in the present. This is the other couplet. Sometimes it's in the future. In other words, we might not always see an immediate reward for our giving. Oh, I gave God this. I put this in the offering bag and nothing's happened yet. You know, sometimes we we may not even see the reward in this life. But the Bible guarantees, the Bible guarantees that there will be a substantial reward for giving to the Lord's work. You can take it to the bank. You know, back to Randy Elkhorn's book, The, uh, The Treasure Principle. He uses an analogy that I think is just brilliant, an analogy to motivate us to want to give as much as we can, be as generous as we can with eternal investments. Okay, he says, imagine, if you would, that you're living in the South toward the end of the Civil War. Now, you see that the war is grinding to a halt. It's soon going to be over, and all of your wealth is tied up in Confederate currency. Okay, That's all your money. It's Confederate currency. Once the war ends, you know it's going to be worthless going to be totally worthless. So what do you do? He said, well, what you do is you save just enough of that currency to pay your bills. Because, you know, as long as the war endures, only Confederate currency is going to be acceptable in the South. You got to have a certain amount of it. But then you, you try to convert or exchange as much of it as possible into U.S. currency. So when the war ends and your Confederate currency is worth Zippo, you've got real money. You've got U.S. currency. And then Randy Elkhorn applies the analogy like this. He says, every one of us is holding in our hand earthly currency. Okay, but, but one day, one day that earthly currency, that money you have, friends, it's going to be totally worthless. Totally worthless. So what do you do? Well, you use just enough of it to pay your bills and whatnot, but you invest, you exchange as much as possible into heavenly currency. How do you do that? You make eternal investments. You you invest in things that are going to last forever. See, this this is the reward of making eternal investments, knowing that a big payoff is coming. Now, there's one third and final aspect of this committed giving I want to mention. We talked about the standard being the tithe. We talked about the rewards uh, that come with being a giver. And third, there's the discipline. J- just look at Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 one last time. Yeah, we're encouraged to give the first fruits of our crops. For an ancient farmer, that meant he would give to the Lord's work every time there was a harvest. Okay, so if he had multiple crops, they were harvested at a different times. Every time he did a harvest, he would bring a portion of that to the worship center. His tithe, his offering, his first fruits. 
So, so those of us who get paid on a regular basis get a weekly paycheck or a monthly paycheck or quarterly or bonuses or inheritance or every time it comes in. We do this not just once. We do it systematically. We do it thoughtfully. It's not a case of, oh, the offering bag's coming down the aisle quick. What, what spare change do I have in my pocket? No, we, we, we prayerfully consider before we write out our check or before we make that electronic donation that you're able to make at Christ's community here. Because it's a, it's a spiritual discipline. Now, I hesitate to use the word discipline because for some of us when we hear discipline, we think drudgery. We think obligation. Oh, so you're laying it on us. We got an obligation to give 10% because God's word says, listen, if you think of it that way, if you think of it as if I give this, it's gone forever, don't give. (laughs) But if you see this as an eternal investment, if you believe that God is good to his word, if you believe that having given you Jesus, the greatest treasure of all, as we talked about last week, that God is going to more than reward anything you give him. The discipline is going to be a joy to you. The expectation, the anticipation is, I can hardly wait to see what God does. Now, we're going to collect our gifts for the day. We're going to take an offering right now as we close our service, as we typically do. But we're going to sing a song. And the song reminds us that we want God in every area of our lives because he is our everything. And when God becomes your your everything and you can trust him with your finances, you begin to walk in obedience in a way that he prospers. There's so much joy. So sing from your heart everything. God, you're my, my everything as we collect our gifts and then our campus pastors will come and close in prayer.